Take your seats, ladies and gentlemen, as the cavalcade of writers continues. I love that. Look at you all attentive, waiting, bated breath for the next words of genius. So, I've got a right treat for you here. First, I'm just going to quickly mention that Cressingham Voices, I don't know how many local people know here that Lambeth Council want to demolish Cressingham Gardens, which is a lovely community that's been there since the 50s, supports all different ages. It's a really nice place to live. So various people in Brixton don't really want that to happen, so they're uniting to fight against it. If you'd like to join them to hear some readings, go along on Tuesday the 11th of October and uh, you can hear some voices from Cressingham. So the next writer that we have on is Martin Miller. Uh, he's been around for a long time. I remember first coming to his books in the 90s and just thinking what a fresh, wonderful voice he had and this really unique way of seeing things. He'll be reading from his new book, Kink Me Honey, this, the earnest, erotic, dominant, submissive, cheerful, depressed, humorous and occasionally clumsy endeavours of Ark, Gina, Mig, Mistress Tardy, Jam Tilly and an assortment of masters, mistresses, doms, subs and slaves in the world of kink centred around sex orbit, London's most prominent fetish organisation. I give you Martin. Hello. Thanks for the introduction, Zelda. Before I start, our host, Zelda. I bring you book, Zelda, which has gone pretty well. I've like, almost finished it, and I recommend it. I recommend it to everybody in the audience. Oops, I meant to put that carefully back in there. That's by way of saying, Zelda, that I might stray just a little bit over five minutes. Ark had covered Gina's shift when Greg Henry Azure, a Canadian author of Erotic and Fetish, had read to an audience downstairs in the cafe. I don't know why he hated his reading so much, said Gina. Other people liked it. Uh, his stories are full of angst and guilt. Everything connected with kink and fetish seems to lead to misery. The people in the audience weren't miserable about their kinky behaviour. They enjoyed it. It's not fetish that makes them miserable. It's lack of it. That may be true, agreed Gina. Megan and Brandon are always cheerful after she whips him. It's quite a happy domestic scene, really. Not, not much angst at all. But that would make for a very good story, would it? And some woman flinging herself enthusiastically, and some woman flinging herself enthusiastically over your knee for a lengthy spanking is hardly going to enthrall the reader either. There's no drama in that. No, I suppose not. Gina smiled. And you know, Ark, you do have your share of misery and angst. Quite a large share. Yes, of course. But that's from everything else in life. The actual kink is fine. Second, I've got three small extracts. Second one. Sex Orbit Personal Blogs. Title, Punishing My Husband. 
posted by user profile deleted. I don't know why I like punishing my husband. I just do. These days, we've been on the internet looking at fetish websites, learning techniques and so on, but we didn't start off like that. We just started off on our own. I used to grab and squeeze his cock at his balls, sort of playfully at first, but then more aggressively. And I used to make him apologize if he'd done anything wrong. Again, playfully at first, more aggressively when we both got into it a bit more. One day, I was in town on my own, and I saw a sex shop. I'd never been in one before, but I just went in on a whim, picked up a riding crop. I didn't feel embarrassed buying it. I knew the girl at the counter would have sold plenty of them before. I didn't show it to my husband till next time he did something I didn't like. Then I told him to get undressed and lie face down on the bed. Then I thrashed him with the riding crop, quite severely for the first time. I was completely into it. So was he, except he couldn't stay still for as long as I wanted him to, because the riding crop was really painful. So after that, when I wanted to use the crop on him, I timed to the bed first. We have a nice big bed, metal headboard. It works well for tying him up. I bought a few more things to use. A gag, some fabric straps, a Velcro on them. I'd say I'd beat him with a riding crop about once a week. It takes about a week for the bruises to heal. So most days he goes to work with bruises on his buttocks. I like the thought of that. He's in meetings in his smart suit, and there's these bruises underneath where I've punished him. Though I generally only use a riding crop at weekends, I probably do some sort of domination every day, even if it's just squeezing his balls or twisting his cock. Sometimes we still look at internet forums, but mostly we'd rather just get on with it ourselves. We don't have any friends in the fetish world. The next time Mark visited Gina in hospital, he politely, brought a, he politely brought a bag of grapes to replace the ones he'd eaten. He sat down by the bed. How are you feeling? Bored, said Gina. I'll be writing some messages on the Sex Orbit forum. There's a minor argument going on about who should be allowed to use the female bathrooms at the club. Ark looked blank. You know, said Gina, trans women, gender queer, that sort of thing. People are disagreeing where you should draw the line. Ark still looked blank. I'm pretty much in favor of letting anyone use them if they identify as female, said Gina. How about you? Ark contrived to look even blanker, if that were possible. Any opinions? What do most people think, said, said Ark. I'd say most people in the forum agree with me. Then I agree too. Gina looked exasperated. But what's your opinion? I agree with whatever everyone else thinks. Doesn't it worry you that you don't have any real opinions about important things? No, said Ark. Why not? 
every time I express an opinion, it gets me into trouble, so I've abandoned it. I don't know what's right for the world. Mostly, I haven't got a clue. I don't like the way you get involved in kinky fetish stuff and suddenly, suddenly you're meant to have opinions. I didn't get involved because I wanted to have opinions. I got involved because I was going out with a girl and I used to spank her bottom a lot, which I enjoyed and she enjoyed it too. And after I'd spanked her about as much as was humanly possible, we decided we'd see what else there was on offer. So we went and bought handcuffs and a whip and shiny black ankle boots, which you could wear while bending over to be whipped. And we both liked that too, so we ended up going to fetish clubs because we thought it might be fun. And here I am, some years later, free of opinions, but still keen on the spanking, whipping and high-heeled ankle boots. You really improve my girlfriend's posture when she's bending over. Gina rolled her eyes. The worldwide trans community thanks you for your support. Okay, thank you. I love the windows into other worlds that you get from these readings. They're great, aren't they? Um, so next up, we have a window into a different kind of world. Joe Clayton's a professional storyteller who tells traditional tales from all over the world. She's performed at the South Bank Centre, Storybook Circus, Dulwich Literary Festival, schools, community venues and festivals. She is storyteller in residence at Great Ormond Street Hospital and was practitioner in residence at Shakespeare's Globe. She writes original children's fiction and short stories for adults. So may I present to you, Joe Clayton. Hello. Hello. Uh, is this in the right place? Yes, it is. Good evening. Oh, it's going to... Okay. So, uh, my printer broke, so I'm hoping that the technology doesn't let me down. And as Zelda said, thank you, Zelda, I used to work at the Globe Theatre uh, for three years, three amazing years. So this is sort of inspired by that. So, at first, she heard the chain. Metal links dragged clatteringly over the cobbles. She thought it must be something to do with the theater, some late night security ritual she knew nothing about. She took another drawer on her cigarette and blew a long, slow trail of smoke out over the river. She watched St. Paul's glimmer in the moonlight, a shimmering great Blue-grey tit, raised heavenwards over the Thames, nipple disturbingly erect. She took another drag and pulled her coat tighter, musing on how her own magnificent assets these days required substantial scaffolding to retain their grandeur in the face of gravity. Her heart beat through the porcelain jar she clutched next to it, and her fingers squeezed tightly around the lid, stifling any stray sobs that might threaten her composure. The clattering again, metal on stone. A strange sound, otherworldly and out of place. She finished her cigarette and flicked the butt into the water, rested red stained lips on her, on her wrist and inhaled deeply catching the scent of bergamot, which mixed with fagash and regret. A bittersweet pang of remembrance bubbled up in her. 
she saw a face upturned on her thigh, a thick mane of dark hair and soft, full lips, the once pristine hotel bed in disarray as she languished in a post-coital fug of chemical bliss. She recalled the wedding ring on the hotel windowsill, glinting in the light of the same moon that now washed St. Paul's sacred titty dome with such pious splendor. This is very weird for me because I can't see you. I never, I'm a storyteller, so usually I can see the people I'm telling stories to. So I apologize. Anyway, carry on. Oh, thank you. That's much better. That's, I like to see you because otherwise you're just blobs in the distance. Okay. Uh, da, 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 da. Da, da, da. Right, the, te the technology is now letting me down. Uh, oh, yes. Bergamot. She sighed. Raised her hip flask to the moon and drained the last of the brandy. Thanks, she said. The moon did not reply. She heard voices, American and excitable, moving fast along the Thames path above her, their energy skipping ahead of her so easily. Tourists. Wow, is that like the original Globe Theatre? I guess. You guys, it's not. I'm kind of disappointed. Like, duh. It looks so authentic, right? Uh-huh. Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art the police? They stopped, took the obligatory selfie with theater, and then they were gone. Their energy and laughter swept along like pollen on the breeze. She sensed their freshness, the sap rising in their stems, the sense of ease with which they negotiated the ever-changing world around them. And she felt cold and empty and alien, crouched on the steps of her ancient river, alone. The water lapped around the pebbles on the naked foreshore, and an evil chill blew up under her coat. She clasped the little pot closer to her chest and curled over it like an anxious child. The sound of the chain again, accompanied by another noise this time, low, and pained. It was not the virgin oaks of the globe croning, groaning with cold, nor was it the living trees of Bankside. It was something huge and soft and sorrowful, and it called to her. She unfurled from the step and um, peered cautiously over the parapet. The small black eyes stared straight into her own, direct and deadly. She gasped, threw herself down onto the gritty step, but it was futile. She had been discovered. The growl came again, long and low and very far from home. She knew it had come for her. She swore silently, pushing away the tears from her cheek and the grip from her skirt, cursing the fates and her fear. Finding her courage, she stood, the wind caught her hair and teased it into plumes of black above her head. Years of training, years of rehearsal, years of treading the boards and finding a particular spot on a director's lens. Her feet planted roots through the granite and her spine built itself vertebra by vertebra in upright defiance of her natural instinct to flee. She met the creature's stare and drew in a determined, measured breath. A hush descended. 
Rebecca Wolf is incandescent. Five stars, The Guardian. A towering performance of female strength, a must-see, The Times. Wolf is utterly magnificent, BBC Radio 4. A career-defining moment, The Telegraph. Deftly, the bear drew itself up onto its hind legs, so it's almost as tall as the groundling gates and balanced for a moment in response. It threw back its head and howled low in its throat through its muzzle. The chain danced along the granite. Rebecca did not flinch. All her stage senses in perfect synchronization. She was poised, every inch alive with possibilities. Wolf is absolutely fearless in her portrayal of the Egyptian queen, Jenny Murray, Woman's Hour. For a moment, the glorious reviews sang in her ears, angel voices of approval and praise. But then the devil spoke. Wolf's Cleopatra, once beautiful, is war-ravaged and haggard, a younger theater. It is a shock to see Wolf in the flesh after all these years the Daily Mail. Watching the Globe's production of Antony and Cleopatra is unsettling, a little like spying on your grandparents after their first encounter with Viagra. Time out. The bear sensed her unease and dropped back to its front paws. Rebecca watched its huge frame shift, the great pads and claws spreading softly into the stone. You've seen some changes, she said, and the bear nodded its muzzled snout in agreement. I wasn't sure you'd come. The bear blinked. Must be time. She sprang from the wall and made her way eastwards towards the Tate, her boots strangely quiet on the great cobbles. The lights twinkled in, early, in the early morning emptiness of a city in suspended animation. The bear followed her in strange procession along Brankside. The minaret of the Tate shone purple against the endless black sky, and a pre-dawned fo uh, fox slid, unseen, behind a thin stem of silver birch. They moved silently up onto the footbridge, which creaked metal against metal in the wind. The bear hesitated on the path. Not another soul about, only the actress and the bear, Bankside's finest. A, tr a truly spectacular night out, whatsonstage.com. The bear halted, sniffed the wind and gurgled. Rebecca stopped too, trying to catch a whiff of whatever it was made him so uneasy. She smelt the river, its muddy darkness creeping under her skin and she shuddered. How many others have gone this way, she wondered. She recalled someone telling her about a young tourist who died jumping off Tower Bridge for a dare. He'd neglected to register the low tide. After an exuberant whooping leap from the, railway, from the railings, he failed to surface from the water. He'd been sucked into the body of London itself stuck fast in the mud of the river, river, helpless to get away. The bear seemed to sense her thoughts and raised its head in what looked like a nod. 
the wind dropped and the river thickened into congealing grey soup. The boat motors were silent. There was no thudding bass line from the party barges, nor engine drone from the night buses, not a siren, a song, or a scream. An otherworldly quietness folded Rebecca in its cloak. She looked at her watch. 2.59 a.m. Did she hear horses' hooves? She wasn't sure. The chimes of Big Bren ran out from downriver as if carried on the wind in a strange auditory hallucination. One, two. She did not count the third chime. Why then? Tis time to do it. Shakespeare always comforted her at times like this, literature less likely to trip her up than her own imperfect lines. Thirty years ago, her Lady Macbeth had been passionate and desperate, her madness melding seamlessly into Rebecca's own despair in a disturbing dance that had sent the critics into a frenzy. They praised her Scottish lilt, her flashing eyes, her womanly charms. They, too, would have killed a king if Rebecca Wolfe had entreated them to. Twenty years ago, she was quite the eve. Something of her Celtic fire bewitched them, apparently. She still dreamt of Kakodi and the beautiful cold beaches of her childhood. But home had a bitter taint the mountains could never dilute. And London had been Rebecca's escape. Thank you very much, Joe Clayton. So, now we have our last writer of the evening, and you have been a very wonderful audience so far. I know you're in for a treat. Ian Bourne, it's a different kind of writer. Very post-structuralist. He uses fi fictional characters and the monologue form to speculate how things might go in terms of an imagined or exaggerated autobiography. Exploring ideas of the author as the hero of his or her own story. In his new work, Subjective Interfaces, this process of creating fictional personas seems to be both exhausted and reversed, as B finds that when he is forced by circumstances to be himself in order to maintain his dignity and humor in the face of the stigma of unemployment and workfare, the persona of the artist maybe all that he has left. Welcome to the stage, Ian Bourne. These, these are from notes for uh, a project I'm working on called The Placement Project, um, which treats unemployment like um, an artist's res residency scheme. So uh, these are from diary notes for The Placement Project. K, my regular advisor at Job Center Plus, peruses my WS-1 and asks me, 
How's your job search going? Do you think you're making any progress? Well, I'm doing my best. There are several things I've got on the go. And what sort of things are they? Well, I've been looking into the possibility of becoming self-employed again. The bloke at SeaTech was showing me the benefits of getting work, working tax credit. That was just before I came off the work program. Yes, the work program. And, and can I just ask about the work program? Do you think it was of any use to you? Uh, not much, really. It just seemed to me to be another bunch of people getting money off the government for the work you, I mean you and all the other people who work here, already do. When I did get a job, you mean the job at Tesco's? Yeah, the job at Tesco's. I got that from a recruitment drive that Tesco's were conducting here. It had nothing to do with the work program, but the work program tried to claim credit for it. Even when I was working, they still kept ringing me up and asking me how I was doing. It was really annoying. I thought once I was into work, I'd be shot of them, but no. I reckon all the ringing me up business was something to do with the contract with the government. They'd never said hardly anything to me before when I was schlepping over to Black Horse Road every other week. All they were doing was getting me to sit in front of a computer with headphones on, watching training videos for hours on end about what color tire to wear at interviews. It's not my place to say anything, but I've heard similar complaints about the work program, if you know what I mean. Well, if you ask me, it's a bit of a scam. I know you can't have opinions about such things. It's just my opinion, that's all. Hmm. Our eyes sort of connect momentarily. I think Kay is on my side. Then he says, now I have something to tell you. Some changes are on the way. I'm telling you this because the government are pushing through some new schemes now that will affect you. I've been telling many others who are in your position, that is people who have been signing on for as long as you have and have completed the work program and who are still unemployed. Now I don't want to worry you unduly. These things are not happening just yet and they won't happen for a few weeks down the line. But I'm just preparing you for the changes because they will come into effect in the near future. Outside, the skies are completely white. I turn right at first, as if heading for the Tesco supermarket. I walk a hundred yards or so, and then my sense of purpose diminishes. Why am I going to the supermarket when I have less than five pounds in my pocket? I stop. I act out a little I've forgotten something routine and do an about turn just in case I'm being candidly observed. I go back the way I came, but avoid passing the job center. I turn left down the first side street and then right onto the high road. After a few strides, I remember what my original purpose had been and why I had been heading towards Tesco's. 
It was to buy a pot of ground white pepper. I also now realize why I've made the instinctive decision to abort the idea. Tesco's are not particularly cheap on white pepper. White pepper is becoming harder to get these days. It has almost completely gone out of fashion. Black is now the dominant pepper. The only places that sell cheap quantities of white are Asian-style grocers. I walk past the bland windows of Matalan, now probably the area's most upmarket establishment. The high road is full of cheap shops that have taken over premises where more dignified shops used to be. A few months ago, Primark, formerly British Home Stores, closed down to make way for a Poundland. I am approaching Poundland now. I decide to go inside. This will be my first time. Maybe they have white pepper. Poundland doesn't appear to be designed for people who know what they want. It has the feeling of not being designed at all. The layout is completely chaotic and childishly colorful. Talcum powder is next to carpet cleaner. A pyramid of baked beans is stacked next to shelves displaying bed linen. Snow shovels are by the children's crayons, just along from bin liners and chocolates. The colors are all sickeningly bright with a predominance of pink and lime green. I feel like I'm walking around in an insane person's head. My stomach begins to hurt. After having taken an unthinkingly haphazard route, I find myself in the middle of the store and can see no obvious way to the exit doors. The aisles in each direction seem to be clogged with plump, squat, people, all of whom are burdened down with contraptions and contrivances, wheelie baskets, walking frames, prams, or with children in tow. The shoppers seem to waddle, rocking from side to side. There is an eerie, almost complete silence, with just the low-level rustling of artificial fabric rubbing against artificial fabric. A panic attack is beginning to creep up on me. Through distant windows, the bleached streets beckon over and above the dark silhouettes of customers and clutter. I hold my breath and try to squeeze through the gaps between people. Thank you. Great reading. Thanks, Ian. That, that was really good. So, sadly, the time has come to wish goodbye to all the very wonderful writers that we've had this evening. Can we have a big round of applause? So thank you to them. First things first, next book jam, 5th of December. Put it in your calendar now. The book jam only comes four times a year. So if you miss it, it's gone. Put that in there now. 
Thank you very much to Jeff for being a brilliant sound guy. Thanks to Rory and Vivian for their beautiful music. Thanks to all our lovely writers for reading to us. And thank the beautiful audience who have just listened so intently to all the words that have come across and as the microphone today, you rock. We love you all. Uh, come back soon. Well, 5th of December. Uh, we are always wanting to surface brilliant talent, whether somebody has been writing for years or is brand new on the scene. So if you know someone who's good, tell them to contact Zelda at badzelda.com and we'll put them on the stage. Thanks, everyone. Don't forget to buy books. Bye. Thank you, Dawn, for tirelessly selling books all night. We love you too.